the sons of Aaron have just been killed by the Lord for offering strange fire. And we read in verse 3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me I will be sanctified. And before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I hope that we understand that every time we gather for worship, all of life, but especially as we gather for worship, we, we should be sanctifying the Lord as holy in our hearts and seeking to, to glorify Him in all that we do, but especially when we begin to consider and speak of the, the being and the nature of God, we need to, we need to be okay with treading lightly with our speech and our words, uh, not going too far, not rushing in uh, quickly to say things or find things that, that might not be accurate or that are not there, but to be satisfied with who God is, how, what He's revealed of Himself, and to be satisfied that, that it, is, it is not more or it doesn't go further than it does it being the revelation of God. Uh, we have what we need, and what we need is, is perfect, and, and, and what we need is far beyond even our comprehension. And so just let that sort of be our, our attitude this evening. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in here. Father, we, we want to honor You, and we want to glorify You. What you think is all that matters. So please help us to seek to please you. I pray that that would be established in our hearts. That the smile of your face would be all our desire and the frown of your face would be the only thing we fear. Please help us to understand, help our minds this evening, Lord. Please help our minds. Help me to speak in a way that's clear. And I pray for those that, that struggle even with normal things. I pray that you'd help them, especially this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with just recapping some of what we said last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day, the number was about like right here. So there are a lot of people who, who weren't here. And I want to situate what's being said this evening back into what we said last week. After a few scriptures, I, I read this quote from William Ames. Quote, Many things are spoken of God according to our own conceiving rather than according to His real nature. We cannot know Him otherwise as we live now, nor do we need to know Him otherwise to live well. The way that we speak and articulate of God... Uh, the way that Scripture even reveals things, all of our language ultimately falls short of the reality of who and what God is. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's less than uh, sufficient for us, but we just have to understand that we are we're trying. This, the, this is the best way I can put it. We are trying. When I say we, I mean the Christian church from the beginning until now, we have been trying, and this is the amazing thing about God and Revelation, we have been trying to articulate what the Bible means when it says 
what it says. It, but it, it still falls short of really who God is. Precise language has been hammered out on the anvil of history in order to be as accurate as possible with the biblical data. In other words, throughout history, the church has worked to put together uh, certain ways of explaining the meaning of what the Bible says. Uh, Scripture itself is sufficient and infallible. We and ourselves are not infallible. And so we have to uh, not only ask what does it say, but then what does it mean when it says that? What do those words and all of them put together, what do they mean? What is the message that's conveyed? And the opposite of that would be what is it not saying? We want to be accurate. We want to be right and articulate what is right, but also uh, articulate what is wrong. And that, that requires us to be precise. I also reminded you that the doctrine of God, what we would call theology proper, theology proper is is the doctrine or the study of who God is in our day is under a little bit of attack. Not directly, they're not people necessarily coming from within uh, confessional, even reformed Baptist circles and saying, we want to tear down and destroy the, the, the doctrine of God. They're not saying that. They 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 pretend as though they would believe and say the same things we do, but then in other, sort of out the other side of their mouths, they say things that would, would actually be harmful. And so that gives us the opportunity in our day as Christians to be more specific, more accurate, and more clear. I'm learning as I study, as I read, as I listen to stuff that I've probably read and studied before and just didn't pay attention, but I'm learning that I've said things in the past that were wrong. My language was faulty. Now, I'm not here to say, because this is, this is very often a, a signaling of one's virtue, I was wrong, but now I'm right. What I want to say is, I have been wrong, and I'm trying to learn how to speak properly. I'm trying to learn how to say it the right way to avoid errors, and I think we all should, I, want us, I want everybody to join with me in that. And as you're reading and you're learning, if, if you hear me say, hey, you said this phrase, but that's not actually accurate, come tell me. I'm, 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 I would not be surprised. But, but I do want to try to be precise. Now, last week we began with the assertion that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or the Lord is one Lord. There's only he is in himself one. But that also led into the truth, or and that was really the, the aim of that section in the workbook, that there's only one God. Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. The Lord is one, and there's only one Lord. And I tried to explain, uh, at least explain, how those are two different things. Uh, Not separate, but they are two different doctrines. There's the oneness of God. We, We might say the simplicity of God, the unity of God. But there's also the exclusivity of God, that that He is the only one like Him. I tried to make the case that we are often too quick to move past the oneness of God to get to the Trinity. And because we just brisk past 
the oneness of God, to get to the Trinity, that sort of opens the door for us to drift into a kind of default tritheism in, in our thinking and, and the way that we think, or at least the way that we, the, we imagine God to work uh, in history and, and in redemption or the way that we imagine God to be. And so I tried to just sort of settle us down there on that idea that, that God is one. This, uh, moving too quickly past the oneness of God, comes from our inclination. We have this inclination, even as Christians, to get from God in Himself to God for us. We, we want to get there. We want to talk about creation. We want to talk about redemption. We want to talk about salvation, Christ's work, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We want to talk about those things, those acts of God which bring us salvation. That's not bad. It's not wrong for us to want to discuss and revel those things. But again, too quickly we want to get there without simply contemplating, meditating on just God. Imagining God as if He had not done the things that He's done, just in His, His own being. Again, the problem with that reasoning is that the only way we get salvation is for God to be true, to be, to truly be who He is in Himself prior to any saving act. If God is not who He is in Himself prior to any saving act, and we don't have salvation, only the God who is can bring salvation. And, and sadly, a lot of people will trade the God who is for their version of salvation or, or some type of feeling that they get when they think about God, even if it's a lesser God. Uh, it, they, they, they are actually okay with bringing God down to the level of the creature if that makes them feel better about who He is, about what He's done, about themselves. And we ought not to think that way. We ought to, to say, I don't, e even if I don't fully comprehend the God who is, and even if, even if thinking about Him in His being doesn't make me feel like I've just crawled up into His lap and snuggled up with Him, it might not feel like that. But He is who He is. And, and regardless of how I might feel as I think about Him in certain, at certain times and places, I cannot reduce Him. I'm not allowed to reduce Him. I must sanctify Him and regard Him as holy. Now, so we, we need to start with who God is and then work our way to what God has done. The Bible actually teaches us to study this way. I've heard Richard Barcellos use this line of thinking several times recently. When you read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. He says right there gives us a formula of how to think about and study God. There's first theology, God. In the beginning, God. Then what we would call economy, the works of God, created. It doesn't say in the beginning there was a creation. And let me tell you about this creation. And oh yeah, there was also this God. No, it doesn't say that. In the beginning, God, who is that? Then work towards Creation. Theology precedes economy. That's another way to, to put it. God is who God is prior to, outside of, and beyond anything that God does. And John 1, 1-3 does the same thing. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
economy, or that's theology. This is who God is. The Word, who was God and was with God, that's theology. Then all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Economy, the works. That's how we should study. That's the order. Study who God is. Hold that. That never changes when we begin to think about the works of God or the actions of God. So I say all that to say we need to avoid the tendency to want to run past who God is to get to what God has done. Now, we're going to talk about the Trinity. And I don't want us to think, because I said all that as in sort of recap, I don't want you to get the impression that the Trinity is the work of God or anything less than who God is. The point is we move past the oneness of God to get to the Trinity so we can get to the works. But we need to focus here on the God who is. He's one. And tonight we'll talk about the concept of Trinity. The Trinity is the God who is. As we just saw in John 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So there, there is God. He is God, but He's also with God, somehow distinct from God, and yet He is God. That's, that's theology, but it's also Trinity. That's, that's revealing something about the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Back to Genesis 1, we know the God who created is Spirit hovering and Word speaking. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Theology leading to economy. But again, Trinity falls into that category of theology. In our haste to get to ourselves or to be practical, we tend to state that reality and then move quickly to try to make some practical illustration to help ourselves understand. And we saw last week, Trinity, um, three in one, and then what was the illustration? It's like we see in the Bible when husband and wife come together and the two become one flesh. Or it's like all of Israel gathered together as one man. We want to get very quickly to, let's make this practical. It's, it's way up here, right? Three in one. We're shaking our heads. You, you keep saying it. I still don't understand. Hold on. Well, let me, let me bring it down. It's like a husband and a wife. No, it's not. It's not like that at all. Not like that. That's, that's, we, we shouldn't do that. These examples, if we, if we read them back into the Trinity, they actually present a false God, and we have to be careful with that. And uh, hopefully I made it clear. I'm not trying to say that's what Washer's doing or what these men are trying to do. I'm just saying we just need to be satisfied with the fact that we don't have to do that. We don't have to, when people say that's incomprehensible, I don't understand. We don't have to say, well, let me pull it down here for you to see it closer. Say, fine, incomprehensible. Amen. Join the club. That's, that's all of us. I read this quote from Liam Gallagher, and I'll quote some more from him this evening. Quote, in himself, he is incomprehensible. This should give us pause for thought before we make any univocal connections between God and ourselves. We must remind ourselves that there is a category difference between God and His creation. God does not belong to reality as we conceive it. Now, when we begin to talk about the Trinity, that's what we're talking about, God in Himself. The Trinity is God in Himself. One God as He is in Himself. We're not thinking about creation. We're not thinking about redemption. We are merely contemplating God. The, the old quote from Spurgeon was, uh, we're going back into the unnavigated ether before time when there had never been um, heard so much as the brush of an angel's wings. 
just God. That's, that's where we're thinking. And there, God is one. At the same time, He's Trinity. He's three. God is Trinity. So, that's, that's where we're going. Now, I want to begin by reading briefly from our confession of faith. In the hymnal, it's page 671. Because his lang- the language in our confession is a little more technical, although Washer does use some of these words, and I want to explain them. They're, they're not just um, throwaway words. From our, our confession of faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1. And I thought I should have made printouts so that everybody could have all this on paper and I just ran out of time. But we read, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself. We'll stop there. I want to define two words. The first is subsistence. Subsistence is defined as a particular being or existent. It's one of those definitions that you're like, give me a noun or a verb or something. I'm trying to put this together. What, that's the definition. Semicolon, another definition would be an individual instance of a given essence. So technically, I am a subsistence. I am an individual instance of the essence that we call human nature. We all share the same nature. I am an individual instance of that nature. Subsistence. That's what, that's what the word means. Now, here in this opening paragraph, it's being used in the abs, with an abstract meaning. This is where it really gets confusing. Because here, whose subsistence, it's referring to the manner of existence or the way that God exists. The manner of existence. God's manner of existence or God's way of existing is in and of Himself. Uh, If we put it in the form of a question, how does God exist in and of Himself? I don't exist like that. I didn't create myself. I'm not sustaining myself. God's subsistence, His manner of existing is in and of Himself. That's what it's saying here. The second word is essence. The word essence is defined as the whatness of a being. That which makes the being precisely what it is. That's its essence. The word essay, esse, E-S-S-E, means to be. The act of existing. So essence is that which makes a thing to be what it is. It's synonymous with nature. What is my essence? What's its body and soul, human nature. That what that's what makes me what I am. Okay? That's the essence. What makes a thing to be what it is? Now, listen to this quote from William Ames. The subsistence of God is his one 
essence. So the manner, God's manner of existing is to be precisely what He is. If we ask in the form of a question, what makes God to be what God is? The answer is His existence as God. That He is. His Godness makes Him God. It is the Godness of God which makes God to be God. Or in the language of Scripture, I am who I am. That's what He's saying. It, it is of the very... Uh, the, 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 the manner of God's existence is Himself, His essence. Now, paragraph 2 of that chapter, we're talking about God. I just want you to think about this God. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, is alone in and unto Himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever Himself pleaseth. That's this God. Paragraph 3, in this divine and infinite being, the divine and infinite being is the God described in paragraphs 1 and 2. In this divine and infinite being, in that God, the, the but one only God, whose subsistence is His essence, in that God, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, or you could read essence, of one essence, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Again, now this is the word subsistence used in the concrete. An individual instance of a given essence. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Or in God, there are three individual instances of the divine essence. And at the same time, each of them have the whole divine essence, yet the essence is undivided. So God subsists, we could say, as to His essence, as to what makes Him who He is, in three subsistences. But it's not one plus one plus one equals one. It's, it's just, this is who He is. God subsists as to His essence in three subsistences, which all have, or we could say possess, or are, which all, all three are the entirety of what makes God to be God. And yet what makes God to be God, His essence, is not divided among them. So it's not divided uh, ever at any point. It's not as though the essence of God is like a pie cut in three pieces, uh, one-third goes to the Father, one-third goes to the Son, one-third goes to the Spirit, and you say, there, they all got the, the same essence. Or they all share the essence. A lot of times that's what we think with share. You get your part, I get mine. It's not that. They're not passed from one another, or the, the essence is not passed from one to another. Like a whole pie, the Father gets the pie, and then after a while He passes the pie on to the Son. 
And then after a while, the Son passes the pie on to the Spirit. And you can say, there, see, they all shared the divine essence. That's not it either. Nor is it as if there were a single pie that over time different toppings were added to make it look like a different pie. For a while it looks like father pie, and then after a while it changes to look like son pie, and then after a while it looks like spirit. It's not that. The essence is never divided. They each have the whole divine essence. Each of the three persons or subsistences is eternally the fullness of what makes God to be God. So, and this, is, this, is, this might be the most helpful thing, everything that we read in paragraphs 1 and 2 in our confession, chapter 2, can be said with very little, if any, qualification. I, I, I think I could say without qualification. Everything we read in paragraphs 1 and 2 can be said without qualification of the Father. Then you could go back to the beginning and read it all and say, of the Son. You could go back to the beginning and read it all, of the Spirit. Without qualification. Ames again. The same essence is common to the three subsistences. As far as essence is concerned, therefore, the single subsistences are rightly said to exist of themselves. As far as essence is concerned, nothing is attributed to the essence which cannot be attributed to each subsistence or person in the matter of essence or as to their essence. The, the point I want you to see is there's one God. There are three persons, but the three are one God. The Father is God. The Father is that one God. The Son is that one God. The Spirit is that one God. Now, look in the workbook, page 15. God is a trinity. The word trinity comes from the Latin word trinitas, which means threefold or three in one. The Bible affirms that the one true God exists as trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons who are distinguishable from one another, and yet they share the same divine nature or essence and relate to one another in unbroken fellowship. Now, I want to open that up a little bit because there are a couple statements here that need to be thought through a little more deeply. The first one is this. They are distinguishable. The three persons or subsistences are distinguishable from one another. Now think. You say, oh, of course. Father, Son, and Spirit. Of course. But think. They all three are one God. Each of them is the fullness of the divine essence. It's not shared. It's not passed around. The fullness of the divine essence is the three. They're distinguishable. The question is, how are the three persons distinguishable? How do we distinguish them? How can we distinguish the Father from the Son? Or the Son from the Father? Or the Spirit and the Father from the Son? Or the Spirit from the Father and the Son? How, how do we distinguish them? Now our tendency is to go straight to economy, works. Right? Straight. We want to go straight to, well, the Son became flesh. And that, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're back... Before all of that, how can we distinguish them? We're just talking about God and Himself. So how, how then are the persons distinguishable from one another when we're considering God apart from any of His works? Aims again. 
they, the three subsistences, three persons, they are distinguished from each other as things connected by certain relative properties so that one cannot be another, although they are of the same nature. Now, again, you hear, we hear sentences like this and we say, okay, I, I, I hear you. You have to understand, again, there, there, is, there is jargon, language, uh, ways of thinking that, it, that it, it's assuming we already know so many words and topics and ideas and, and things. Our confession says this. You've read our confession. Our confession says that God is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. So our confession says it right there. That's how we distinguish them. Relative properties and personal relations. You all read it, right? You all agreed to it. How are the persons to be distinguished from each other? According to certain relative properties. This is the first way. Relative properties. Or in the way that they relate to each other. That's a relative property. And you can already see how this is going to... The next question is that, that they relate to each other. And we'll get to that. But how can we distinguish them? Relative properties. What does that mean? How they relate to each other. That's how we distinguish them. So what are these relative properties and personal relations? Rel three relative properties. Paternity, filiation, and procession. So you men who listen to Sam Renahan's stuff on YouTube, you, you, know, you know you have all this memorized. Three relative properties. Paternity, filiation, and procession. Who has, you can answer out loud, who has the property paternity? Think paternal. Who? Father. Paternal refers to fatherhood. The father has the property paternity, okay? Who has the property filiation, filial? The son. Filial refers to sonship. The son has that property, filiation. And then the property of procession is belongs to the Spirit, coming forth from. The Spirit has that property. In other words, you see, we, we distinguish the persons of the Trinity not by what they do, but by who they are. I don't have to go into the works of God to explain what I just said. I can go to the text of Scripture and show you that is true of God from eternity apart from any works. The Father is distinguished as the Father because He begets the Son. Right? He's the, the, uh, God sent His only begotten Son. The Father begets the Son eternally. The Father begets the Son. The Son is distinguished as the Son because He's begotten of the Father. He is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Spirit is distinguished as the Spirit because He proceeds from the Father and the Son. What did Christ say? Ask the Father, I will send you the Helper of the Holy Spirit. Later on, the, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. That's, that's what the text says. That's what the Spirit does. The Father is distinguished as Father because He begets the Son. What makes Him Father? He begets the Son. The Son is distinguished as Son because He is begotten of the Father. What makes Him the Son? Well, He's begotten of the Father. If, if I have... If, if, if a male child, again, this might be a bad way to think, but if I have a male child, what do we call him? We call him my son. 
The Son is the Son because He's begotten of the Father. And the Spirit is distinguished as the Spirit because He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, you might object and say, well, it sounds like you're saying that the Father is distinguished from the Son because He's the Father and not the Son. Exactly. That's what we're saying. That's, that's relative properties. Again, that's what, uh, what Ames said, that, so that one cannot be another, although they are of the same nature. How can we distinguish the Father from the Son? The Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son? Well, the Father begets the Son. Therefore, He's not the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father. Therefore, He's not the Father. The Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. Therefore, He can't be the Father and the Son. That's how we distinguish them. And these three are one and the same God, one undivided essence. Now, listen to this. This is Liam Gallagher again. Quote, The Father generates, the Son is generated, and the Father and the Son spirate the Holy Spirit. These actions, I'm going to read it. I, hope, I want you to hear it. These actions are not understood to be distinct in themselves, but with respect of the persons, they are distinct. The action by which the Father, generate, by which the Father generates the Son, the action by which the Father and Son spirate the Holy Spirit is nothing other than the pure act of God. Now, there are a lot of people who today are arguing over this, this, this idea that God is pure act. In eternity, there's nothing but God. You're saying He's acting in some, some way? There's, there's no potential in God in eternity when there's nothing but God? Well, then what is He doing? He's being. He's being. Father generating Son. Son being begotten of the Father. Father and Son, spirating Spirit, pure act, eternal. It, there was never a time when it began. This is eternal God in Himself. It's beautiful because it's incomprehensible, and yet it is what must be concluded from the biblical witness, that there is one God, He is in Himself one, and there are three persons in the one God, and each of them are the one God. So they can be distinguished. He also says that they relate to one another in unbroken fellowship. The Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, relate to one another. You say, of course they do. The Father, Son, and Spirit. There they are in eternity. We have this picture of them, or this, mind, this thing in our mind, swirling around. They're relating to each other and dodging past each other. And, and No, no. They are all three one God. Each of them is the fullness of the divine essence. The fullness of the divine essence is the three. How do they relate to each other? How can that be? How then do they relate to each other? I'll say this. Not in the way that humans relate to each other. Not in the way humans relate to each other. This again, another hot topic, another debate. Is God relational? Well, depends on who you ask and what you mean by that. But think. The term relate comes from the Latin relatus, used as a past participle of refer, which means to bring back or bear back. 
You, you might hear, have heard someone say, He related to me the news of the accident. What does that mean? He brought it back to me. That's what the word relate means, to bring back something. Inherent in the idea of relating, relation, and relationship is a two-sided give and take. That is inherent in the, the, the meaning of the word. One thing stands in relation to another thing. And the sense, this is from the, the etymology dictionary online, the sense of to feel connected or sympathetic, I just, she just relates to me so well. That idea, says, is attested from about 1950, originally in psychology jargon. Now, what do people mean by that? We, we, we relate so well. When we get close to each other, they, you know, there, there are things that they do that when, when, when I uh, meet them, I am, am not perturbed, I kind of enjoy that person being themselves. That's what we mean. When we say that two people are related or that they have a relationship, we are necessarily assuming two separate individuals that can be understood as essentially distinct from each other and then they're, they're brought together or viewed because of some bearing between them. I am related to my sister. We're, we're two separate, com completely separate individuals. But we are related by our shared parents. Two separate things relating to one another. If we say, I have a good relationship with this person, what we're saying is, when they are who they are, I welcome it with pleasure and vice versa. They welcome who I am. If we have a bad relationship, we say, who they, when they are who they are, I spurn it with disdain. I don't like who they are. Uh, who I am does not like who they are. But it, all of it is assuming two separate things coming into contact with each other. I'll come back to God and the three persons of the Trinity. The, these are all three, one God. Each of them is the fullness of the divine essence. The fullness of the divine essence is the three. There is one mind, one heart, one will. Gallagher again speaking of God in himself, quote, In that eternal repose there was one mind, one will, one love, one power shared equally by the divine persons in perfect unity and identity of being. Essence, nature, identity, one. In light of all that, we have to be very careful when we speak of the relations of the persons of the Trinity and say, well, they relate to each other. Because when we hear they relate, or when we hear God is relational, we don't use that, those words the way we should. Or, or I could say, what we see in God is not what we mean by those words. We can at least say this for certain. It's not like anything we can describe. So the unbroken fellowship... He says, they relate to one another in unbroken fellowship. The unbroken fellowship of the, the three divine persons is not like us getting together and having a really fruitful and enjoyable conversation. It's not like that. Nothing I have described about uh, equality of divine persons, unity of, of identity and being, none of that is in any way comprehensible to us as individual human beings. It's not like us. They do relate to each other, and it is by the personal relations. Remember our confession says, uh, uh, I forget the phrase, yeah, relative properties and personal relations. They do relate to each other. 
How do they relate to each other? Well, you know, they get together and when they see each other, they say, hey, there you are. No. How do they relate? Personal relations. The father is father to the son. That's how he relates to him. The son is son to the father. That's how he relates to him. The father and the son spirate the spirit. That's how the father and the son relate to the spirit. They spirate him. And the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. That's how he relates to them. That's the personal relations. This is how they relate. Does that sound like anything you've ever experienced? Anything you know? No, it's not. It's by Him. It's, it's, it's only Him. That's how they relate. And yet, we cannot state all of that without bringing into the equation something that the men discussed just recently, uh, which is the notion of perichoresis. Some of you probably wonder, what is it that gets those guys excited on Saturday mornings at 6.30? Well, it's perichoresis. This is a, a quote that we, we recently read from the Free Grace broadcaster. Perichoresis. See, that's a, a new word maybe for some of you. It's a Greek term used to describe the triune relationship between each person of the Godhead defined as co-indwelling, co-inhering, that is permanent existing in one another, and mutual interpenetration. Alistair McGrath says that this allows the individuality of the persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. An image often used to express this idea is that of a community of being in which each person, while maintaining his distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. Each person shares in the life of the other two. Sound like anything you've ever experienced? No. Elsewhere, Richard Mueller quotes the decree for the Jacobites, which comes out of the Syrian church, which says, quote, the unity of the Godhead is such that the persons are wholly in one another. Again, we're asking the question, how do they relate? They are wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly in one another. A perfect and complete co-inherence or perichoresis. And that therefore none precedes the other in eternity, none exceeds the other in greatness, or excels the other in power. Now I had to look up this decree for the Jacobites. I wanted to read it. This is from that same document. Quote, Because of this unity, the Father is entire in the Son. Entire in the Spirit. The Son is entire in the Father, entire in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is entire in the Father, entire in the Son. That's how they relate to each other. Uh, my neighbor, you all know Josh, I, I really look up to him because his house is higher elevation than mine. He, he sent us a Ligonier article. and I, I could send you this. It's, it's a very simple, but it explains the same doctrine of perichoresis. Quote, We can distinguish the divine persons, but we cannot pull them apart. They exist in one another. The Father dwelling completely in the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son dwelling completely in the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
and the Holy Spirit dwelling completely in the Father and the Son. We find this concept of perichoresis in texts such as John 14, 8-11, wherein the Son confesses that He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. If that's what you mean by God is relational, I agree wholeheartedly. That's how they relate. That's how these persons relate to each other. So they are distinguishable by their peculiar relative properties, and they relate to each other by these personal relations and perichoresis. Now, with all that being said, let's read these texts that are listed in the workbook. Um, some of you might have blanks that you've not yet filled in, so here's answer time. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. He points out, singular name, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And he points out it would be uh, essentially blasphemy if all of this was put together and we did not assume the Son and the Spirit were God along with uh, the Father. Mark 1, 10-11. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here again you see the three distinct persons, John 14, 16, and 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. Now I will point out these texts, especially those last two from Mark and John, are... are referencing works of God, they're post-incarnation, they're in the realm of redemption. And somebody could read that and say, see, those three are not one. Son's in the water, Spirit's coming down like a dove, Father's up in heaven. How can they be one? Uh, so sometimes passages like that are not the best to use to really vindicate the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. But we do see them there together. Then there is this note, these simple texts from script from these simple texts of scripture, it's clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. God is not three independent beings or three different gods, nor is God one person who wears three different masks or simply reveals himself in three different forms. The God of the scriptures exists as three distinct but equal persons who are one in their divine nature or essence and who dwell in perfect equality and unity. All right, number, uh, number four gives us several texts, and, and he, he gives this statement, although the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal and, and exist in perfect unity, they often carry out distinct functions and manifest themselves in different ways. Now, I'll just say this. The works of God are performed inseparably. So, if you, if, you're, if you say they carry out distinct functions, if by that you mean, and yet at the same time, whatever they do, they all do. Whatever they do, they all do. I can, I can go along with that statement. But here's a quote from a man named Craig Carter. The 4th century pro-Nicene theologians from Athanasius to the Cappadocians to Augustine all agreed that the three have one will and act inseparably 
in all their works in history. We talked about this yesterday morning, the doctrine of inseparable operations. All of the works of God in history are one. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all working as one. They, they are all working there. The, the doctrine of appropriations is what we use to explain uh, how a particular work is often ascribed specifically to a singular person. For example, we would talk about how the Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. Well, that doesn't mean the Father and the Son are not involved, but we do typically ascribe that work peculiarly to the Spirit, or, and we call that the doctrine of appropriations. Uh, the reason that, that that kind of thinking is important is because you come to these texts or these statements that he makes. 4a, the Father is the invisible God whom no man has seen. John 1.18. Uh, the Son and the Spirit are also invisible. Nobody has ever seen the divine nature of the Son. They, they saw the man Christ Jesus, His human nature. But that doesn't mean that the divine nature, which is the same essence that the Father has, which is invisible... That doesn't mean that it's visible. The Spirit is also invisible. The Son is God made flesh. I would, I would rather say the Son is God, the Son, who then took on flesh. But, but does Colossians not say that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in, in the man Christ Jesus? Does that mean the Father and the Spirit just sort of sat back and watched as, as this separate entity? Uh, no, it's, the divine essence is one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. The Spirit is God living in the Christian. Does that mean the Father and the Son are not involved? No. John, John 14, he references, verse 23, says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Who indwells the believer? God. Father, Son, and Spirit. But through the peculiar working of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean the Father and the Son are absent. I say that to say we just need to be careful in how we read these types of texts and, and keep in mind that God is one, not drifting into that tritheism. The Father and the Spirit, they sit back and watch the Son do this or that. Nor would it be appropriate to say the Father was incarnate as the man Christ Jesus. That was the Son, but the Son is the fullness of the divine essence. You say that's incomprehensible. Yes, it is. Um, some summary truths about the Trinity. I'll read through these. First one, God is one. Number two, God is three. Number three, the Scriptures clearly affirm both of these as important truths, or both of these important truths. God is one and God is three. Number four, the three persons of the Trinity are real and distinct persons. Number five, the three persons of the Trinity are perfectly equal. This is where uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I have heard that Washer takes a, a different view than us with regard to eternal subordination. But here he says, the Son is not less than the Father, nor is the Spirit less than the Son. Um, that is eternally true. I think most of those who hold to eternal subordination would probably agree with that statement. He's not less than, and yet he's, he submits or subordinates himself. Um, but going back to what we read earlier, there, there is no hierarchy. There, there is no levels of, of working in God. Number six, the three persons of the Trinity may manifest themselves in different ways and may carry out different functions. 
Again, yes, if you're thinking of appropriations, the mystery of the Trinity is not grounds for its denial. It's something that we receive by faith. You say, I don't understand any of what you're saying. That's okay. We, we just accept it. Because based on the biblical data, the Bible lists out these truths and we have to make sense of it. We, we, we take it on faith. It's interesting in, um, in Ames' Marrow of Theology, he begins by, first chapter is sort of the idea of theology, the second chapter, um, I forget how, what the second chapter is, but before he gets to uh, the subsistence of God, his, his, the first section is faith. Like we should, let's start with faith. This is, we've got to begin here. Now let's talk about who God is. Now that we've understood that we, we believe and trust what God has said. Number eight, most illustrations used to explain the Trinity are woefully inadequate. I would work, mark out the word most and write the word all. All illustrations used to explain the Trinity are woefully inadequate. Now, uh, the implications of the Trinity. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Numbers 1, 2, 3, and 5 are dangerously close to making some of the errors that I mentioned at the beginning. And I believe it's out of a desire to make the doctrine of the Trinity immediately accessible. Let's, let's get some implications. Let's draw this down and make it practical before we move on. Number one, the Trinity teaches us that God is relational. The Father, Son, and Spirit have existed together throughout eternity in a mutual relationship of perfect unity and love. The believer has been invited to enter into this fellowship. Now, if by relational you mean the way that we have relationships, then no, that's wrong. It's not true. The Trinity does not teach us that God is relational like we are. It's completely different. It's not the same thing. Uh, yes, we do enter into the fellowship uh, with the triune God, but not in the same way that the Father, Son, and Spirit are in fellowship with one another. We, we don't enter, we don't become part of that. We, we have fellowship with them, but we have to be careful when, when these types of statements are made. You could read that and say, oh, well, it, they, get, they hang out just like we hang out, and I've been invited to hang out for all of eternity. No, that's not, what, that, that's not true. Number two, the Trinity teaches us that God has no need. God did not make man or redeem a people for Himself because He was lonely or needy, true, but for His own glory, true, and out of His superabundance, that's true. The three persons of the Trinity are perfectly satisfied in one another. God has no need to be made complete by anything or anyone outside of Himself. Now, again, the statement is true, but it almost could be understood to sound like the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three separate individuals who come together eternally to meet the needs of the other, the shortcomings, as if the Father is in need without the Son. And, but, but the Son is there, and so the Father is not in need. Same with the Spirit and back and forth. The, I think, again, the mistake is trying to make to think of in, in human relational terms and read that back into the Trinity. No, the Father is all God. The Son is all God. The Spirit is all God. One essence. So, I, I don't think it's necessary to say, well, the Trinity teaches us that God has no need. I think we could just say the godness of God teaches us that He has no need. He's God. Number three, the Trinity teaches us that God is love. Love is not just an action, but also an attribute of God. This attribute is eternal. 
It's not something that began with creation. Long before the universe was made, God was love, and a perfect expression of this love was found among the persons of the Trinity. Now again, I, I agree with the statement, but we have to be careful that we don't read human concepts of love and relationship back into God. Yes, it is true, God is love, but God is not love because the Father looked outside of Himself and saw the Son and said, now, now I love you. And boom, there it is. God is love. No, the Father is love. The Son is love. The Spirit is love. God is love because of who God is. And we have to be careful that we don't take that and then just read into it the way we think about love going from us to somebody else. Um, those are just, you know, be careful how you read these things, except number one. Number five, I believe, is, is you can Google social Trinitarianism and see if this is not exactly what you will find. The Trinity is a model for our human relationships. The three persons of the Trinity dwell together in pure equality and unity, yet have different roles or functions. This is especially evident in the Son's submission to the Father in the Incarnation. I would add, in the Incarnation. Although equal with God, he submitted to the Father's will and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2, 6-8. This proves that submission in its proper context is not demeaning to the individual's dignity or a mark of inferiority. This has special application for each aspect of human relationships, especially with regard to church life, leaders in the congregation, marriage, husbands and wives, family, parents and children, and employment, employees or, and employees. Again, Look up social Trinitarianism and see if this is not exactly what is being said. It's, uh, in recent years, it's been coughed back up as a, a dangerous response to egalitarianism, that, that men and women don't have distinct roles. Um, the, the, that's egalitarianism, where we would, we would be complementarian, that they do have distinct roles. They're different. The Bible commands a, a, a wife to submit to her husband, Right? The husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. The Bible commands that. People don't like that. They, they spit that out and they, they say, no, we're not doing that. We're all the same. There, there's no differentiation between us. Well, in response to that, men have come back and they have said, um, whoa, don't, don't, don't freak out. Don't go crazy. Listen, it's kind of like uh, God. You know, the son submits to the father and that's not bad. That's, that's not a good way to argue. Listen to Gallagher again. In the triune God, the three persons think as one, will as one, rule as one, and act as one. And God does so from the perfect rest of His eternal life. The person's mutual indwelling and delight in each other is beyond our understanding. Their fellowship is unique and cannot be reproduced. Later on he says... To use the intra-Trinitarian relations as a social model is neither biblical nor orthodox. God is not a collection of people, but we are. He is the Creator and we are His creatures. The incarnate Christ sets an example of godly living as God in human flesh. He does not give us an example of the in eternal life of God. 
The inner life of the triune God does not support hierarchy, patriarchy, or egalitarianism. If you think about it for a moment, how could it? End quote. It just doesn't. So he, he uses those, those statements about husbands and wives, parents and children, employer employees. Again, that, that, that came out of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood movement, Wayne Grudem, uh, Bruce Ware, those men. They wanted to defend complementarianism. And so they, they, they wanted to come to the rescue and say, no, it's okay for wives to submit to their husbands because the son submits to the father. Well, now it comes down to in eternity, the son submitting to the father because it's, it's in and part of who God is. That's, that's wrong. That's, that's uh, at least material heresy. Um, so here's going to be my admonition. Let's just stop saying this kind of thing. Just don't say it. Wives, we submit to our husbands. It's kind of like the son submitting to the father. No, it's not. Just don't say that. Just leave, leave God where He is. He gives His revelation. He tells us what to do. And we do it. We just obey. Craig Carter again. Everyone agrees that in some sense God is relational as a covenant-making God, but the 20th century is littered with the mistake of reading creaturely personhood into the eternal divine being too carelessly with the horrifying result that God is lowered to our level. May it never be. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. We do not bring Him down to our level under any circumstance. We do not, these are my words, we do not need to abuse the eternally blessed and holy Trinity in order to convince people that it will be okay if husbands and wives obey God. We don't have to do that. Well, I don't, I don't like to submit. Well, that's your problem of sin, but I don't need to bring God down to show you, well, it's okay if you do what He says. No, I leave Him up there. I say, you know, you better do what he says. And that's it. And we, we, we have to be okay with that. If we want to be immediately accessible and practical, then contemplate the unutterable and incomprehensible nature of the three in one. Stand in awe of him. Love him. Fear him. Obey him. Live every day in unceasing eagerness for the day when you will see Him as He is. There's nothing more practical than that. Get your mind in the clouds, in the heavens, seated where Christ is at the right hand of God. Contemplate and meditate God. That's the most practical thing any one of us could do. And then I will say, number four, the Trinity teaches us that our salvation is a work of God. The Father who designed our salvation and governs its every detail is God. The Son, upon whose person and work our salvation depends, is God. The Spirit who indwells us and seals us for the day of redemption is God. Each person involved in our salvation is fully God. Therefore, we can have unwavering confidence that the God who began a good work in us will finish it without fail. I agree with that. It's good news. Let's pray.